It was pretty good, huh? All right, thanks. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever had a special guest in your home? Someone that you invited over or announced they were going to come into your home, and uh, it could cause a little bit of panic, can it? This, this special guest. I remember when Christine and I were in seminary. Uh, for one semester, we had a guest professor on campus, and he was teaching a course called The History of Missions, and this guy's name was, his name was Dan Bacon. Now, that may mean nothing to you, except for, wow, his name sounds tasty, Bacon, but uh, that was funny. Come on. Are you guys there? Hello? Anyway, Dan, Dan, to us, was a very special person. He was the president of an organization called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF International, the mission organization that Christine and I were hoping to go with. To Thailand. And so we thought we were going to invite Dan and his wife was with him, Lindy, into our home. And so there was a little bit of panic. Dan, he's my professor, he's my teacher, and he, he's the president of this mission organization with hundreds of, of people in Southeast Asia, and he's going to be in our mobile home, our semi-half trailer, you know. And so they came, and they were very... Dan and Lindy are wonderful people, and, and it was, we were having a good time, and we were eating dinner. We just thought we were inviting them over for dinner, you know? And then we sat down, and they started, like, interviewing us, asking us really hard questions and stuff. And, oh, the stress mounted. And then, near the end, because this had to be the end, uh, they looked at Christina and said, Christina, Christina's not here this morning. Well, she's downstairs, so I'm going to throw her under the bus here. Uh, so they said, Christina, what are, what are some of Cliff's strengths? What are some of Cliff, your wonderful husband's strengths? And uh, Christina, say a word. And I start, I the sweat. Is just, this is my future hopeful boss, big boss over the whole thing. And, and you know, I have to have strengths if, if the, you know, and Nothing. You know, the sweat is, is beating up on my forehead, and she's looking panicked, too, you know. And eventually she says, well, he's funny. <laughs> he's funny. What? Uh, he's very funny, so send him to Thailand to preach the gospel. It will, it will be amazing. Anyway, they let it go, and we made it to Thailand. I don't know how. I don't know why they let us in. And, and since then, I've, I've given Christina a list of my strengths, and she's memorized them, and so feel free to ask her now, and she'll have a whole plethora of strengths. So that was a visit that didn't quite go as, as I had planned, but it, but it worked out in the end. Today we come to Genesis 18, and, and Abraham is going to have a very special guest in his home. Chapter 18 picks up. Pretty much right after chapter 17. Remember at the end of chapter 17, the guys all get circumcised. So this is a little bit after that. So I think they're healed up, as we'll see. Abraham's going to be running around. There ain't no running around, probably right after you get circumcised. So a little bit of time has passed. He's just, uh, he's obeyed the Lord. He's keeping the covenant, circumcision himself, Ishmael, the guys, and shortly after that is visited by three very special guests, very special men. And we'll see when we get to verse 21 
uh, next verse, I mean, sorry, verse 21 next week, we're going to verse 15 this week, that these men had come down to, to check out Sodom and Gomorrah. But along the way, they were stopping by Abraham's place, Abraham's digs, his home, and they were stopping by. So our first point here, Abraham receives the Lord, because we're going to find out this is a very, very, the most special guest ever. Verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. In the middle of the day, 99-year-old Abraham, recently circumcised, is trying to get some rest when suddenly the Lord appears. Now, when you see that word Lord in your Bibles, all caps, it's our English word, uh, it's not our English word, when it's all caps in English, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the self-existent, eternal name of God. It's the name God gave Moses at the burning bush. This is God come down to take on human form. This is what theologians call a Christophany. The pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate, before Christ came, was born through the virgin birth, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus standing there with Abraham. The Lord shows up out of the blue, unannounced. And this, as you might imagine, causes Abraham to go into a a bit of a panic. Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he, he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. The Lord is accompanied by two, what the text calls men. Later, these men will be revealed as, as angels, and, and they'll go in and, and they'll rescue Lot out of Sodom. Notice how Abraham responds to the Lord's appearance. He runs to meet him. He bows before him. He dresses him as, as Lord. This, is not, this isn't the Hebrew word Yahweh. That comes later. Moses is reflecting back. He knows the name. Abraham doesn't. It's the Hebrew Adonai, which means master. He asks or he begs the master to stay. He calls himself the master's servant. He's a servant. And then he goes into servant mode. Abraham says to the three visitors, verse 4, let a, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. The Lord said, go ahead. Whatever. You know, do, do what you think is best. Abraham receives the Lord and the Lord's companions with, with great hospitality. He makes sure their, their feet are washed, you know, the sandals of the day, dirty feet. He gives them a place to rest, and he tells them he's going to bring them a morsel, just a, little bit of, just a little bit of bread. They agree, and Abraham goes. Abraham goes off. And Abraham, verse 6, went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three sihas of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. You get the idea that Abraham's in a serious hurry here. He's in a little bit of a fit. 
He went quickly to the tent of Sarah, his wife, and he said, Quick, make some bread. There were only three guests, apparently, but Abraham calls for three sihas of fine flour. That, that's six gallons of flour. That's a lot of dough. Abraham's going to make some serious bread for these guys. Then he runs and gets a calf and some curds. Curds is kind of similar to butter or yogurty butter and milk. He told them he was going to get them a, a morsel of bread, and he, he comes back with this major feast. The Lord had come to Abraham, and Abraham had received him with gracious, generous hospitality. You know, this passage, in my mind, reflects on the idea that, that God, Abraham is called three times in Scripture a friend of God. A friend of God. I've heard people say that, hey, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my bud. God, God's, God's my, best fr- my best pal. But most of the time, what they mean by that is different than what it means when it says Abraham was a friend of God. To many people, having God as their friend means God is coming down to their level. God is, is like them in many ways. God doesn't judge me and I don't judge him. We just sort of hang out sometimes. But Abraham gives us a different picture of what it means to be a friend of God. Abraham's friendship involves really two aspects here, as I see it. It involves the aspect of relationship and the aspect of of reverence. Reverence. In relationship, Abraham ran to meet the Lord like a friend who, who hasn't seen in a long time, running to greet him like a daughter who's returned from college and we run to greet her. Right, Dan? Amen, brother. He invited him in. He begged him to say he wants to spend time with his friend. He gives, him, gives generously of, of what he has to his friend. He makes sure his friends are comfortable. And then he gives them a meal. Sharing food together is, is one of the greatest signs of intimacy and friendship. That's why at Bridges we have food together almost every week now. Seems like this is the new thing. We're going to, I like it. I'm always, I enjoy eating. Eating with you people. So today we're eating, so I'll see you there. And then next week we're eating at the Cad's house. I'll see you there. The intimacy of relationship and friendship is built up over, over a meal. This is a, the relationship aspect of Abraham's friendship with God. But there's another aspect as well. And that's reverence. Reverence. God is a friend, but God is God. He's the Lord of, of heaven and earth. And in reverence, Abraham calls him Lord, Master. He bowed before him, honoring him, worshiping him, worshiping his almighty friend. What a friend we have in Jesus, the song goes. Jesus, the all-powerful, almighty God. He bowed before him. He served him a meal and stood by. He didn't eat with them. That was maybe a little bit too much. But he stood by, waiting to see if there's anything else that the Lord needed. Abraham truly was an example of of what it means to be a friend of God. And and God desires each of us to have that friendship with him as well. He's calling us into friendship with him. but But a friendship that includes that relationship and reverence. We're to welcome him into our lives. To run to him. To bow before him. To ask him to stay. Take up residence in my life, Lord Jesus. To honor him with joyful service. To give to him graciously and generously. And yes, to share a meal with him. 
It should be noted that it, in Scripture, this is the only time that, any, that God shares a meal, that God has a meal with someone until Christ comes himself, the incarnation. Jesus was known for eating with people. If you read the, the Gospels, not just disciples, not just his disciples, although he ate with them for three years, however many meals a day they had. But he also ate with sinners and, and tax collectors. And even though Jesus is no longer physically present on earth, he still desires to eat. Have this kind of relationship with his friends. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says this, not to unbelievers, which so often we, we use it for, but to the church. To the church, he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus offers to come in to our lives, our hearts, the center of our lives, in a more intimate and and permanent way than he came into Abraham's life. For Abraham, he was there, and then he was gone. He offers to stay in our lives, to come in and share the intimacy of a meal together, to eat with us, to be our friends. All we need to do is open that door to welcome in, to receive his offer of friendship. And and remember that friendship involves both relationship and reverence. For he's the God of the universe as well as our our friend. I would encourage you this week just to, to think about that, to meditate on the truth that God is a friend. That God through Christ desires to have relationship with you to spend intimate quality time with you. I found it helpful when I, I'm reading God's word, when I'm spending time in prayer, to picture myself eating with the Lord, sharing an intimate meal with, with my friend Jesus, telling him about the events of my day and listening to him through his word speak to my heart. The intimacy that, that Christ desires with each of us. In our passage next, And in our passage, the next thing we see is the Lord speaking to Abraham's heart. What's on Abraham's heart? Anybody got a guess? At this point, what's Abraham thinking about? What's he been thinking about for 23 years? Where's the kid? The promised child. The promise that God had made to him and Sarah. Specifically, this promise of a, a child. It's been 23 years. And the Lord wants to make, it, make, make sure that both Abraham and Sarah know that the time is near. But as we'll see, Sarah has her doubts. As Tom alluded to, she's going she's gonna to laugh. Sarah resists the Lord, we're going to see. In verse 9, they said to him, they being the three, says, say to Abraham, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So we've talked about circumcision. Now we get to go to the, the way of women. Excited about that. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out... And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord asked, Sarah, asked Abraham, where, where's your wife? Where's your wife? Where's Sarah? Remember, I gave her this promise too. 
He didn't stop just to visit Abraham, but to encourage Sarah as well. Abraham said, she's in the tent. She's in the same tent they were in, but, but she's out of sight. This isn't, how many people like to go camping? Oh, that is way too many campers. How many people have a tent that they camp in? Oh, wow, that's amazing. I thought we were all had mobile homes and RVs these days. But this isn't a camping tent. This is a big, a big tent. It's not the tabernacle tent. You guys, we were talking about that this morning. But it's a big tent. It has compartments, several compartments. So Tara, Sarah's in the tent, but she's out of sight. She's probably on the other side of one of the cloth parts of the tent, the, maybe the door of the tent. So Sarah was, was in that larger compartment, but she could hear everything that was going on. She could hear what was happening. The Lord wants both Abraham and Sarah to know that he'll be back in a year. That within, that within one year, the promise that they have been waiting for will be fulfilled. The promised child, Isaac, laughter, would be born. But when Sarah, who was listening at the door, heard this, she laughed to herself. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. She didn't laugh out loud. She didn't want to be rude, maybe, or, or she didn't want to be discovered, more likely. But in her heart, even as she heard the promise spoken again, she knew it was impossible. There is no possible way she could have a child. The way of women had ceased to be with her. Polite way of saying that the menstrual cycle had stopped. Okay, I said it. Both she and Abraham were worn out. They were, worn, they were used up. Dried and shriveled up. <laughs> Is that bad? Okay. Well, anyway, it would be physically impossible for her to get pregnant. This is the Bible, I'm sorry. And you know what? Sarah was right. She was correct. It would be physically impossible for her to get pregnant. There was no physical way that Sarah could have a child. Even when she was younger and the way of women was still happening, she was barren. And now this visitor is saying that she'd be giving birth within a year. Okay. Now Sarah, I think... Probably to hide the pain, because remember, we've talked about this a lot. Sarah, this is a painful thing for her. You know, this is, I mean, it's one thing in our culture, and it's certainly painful for a woman to not be able to have a child, but in this culture, it was an anathema. It was, it was God's blessing was, on, was not on you if, if you were childless. So I think to hide her pain and to put down any hope, Maybe, maybe there was a slight bit of hope left, and she doesn't... I don't want to hope. I don't want to... It's been too long. This is hopeless. She didn't want to rekindle any hope, so she just laughs. Yeah, right. I'm not going to hope in the promise anymore. It's too late for me. Her laugh was a, a sign of this hopelessness, and hopelessness that, that le- led to, and often does lead to, unbelief. But before we judge Sarah too quickly, I think we need to reflect on our own hopelessness and unbelief. The times when we laugh at God. Huh, God, you can't do that. That's just not possible. But I think Sarah provides a picture of how we often view the promises of God. She had a a promise of God, and she was laughing at it. You know, on the one hand, there is physical reality, 
and it's real. It's physical, it's real reality. What we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we taste, what we smell, what we in our experience know to be true. Sarah knew her body. She knew the physical reality of her situation. There was no way she could get pregnant. That was the hopeless reality that she was living in. The barren, hopeless reality that she was living in. And we're so much like her. We focus on the the five senses. We know our experience and the experience of others. We know what's real. We know the physical reality of the situation. And oftentimes this becomes the hopeless reality that we live in. Now I know it's not Christmas, but the movie, the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, clearly illustrates this principle. How many of you have never seen this movie? Okay. Wait. Are you serious? You've been to my home and you've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. You're dating my son and you've never seen... That's, that, we're going to have to remedy that. All right. But it clearly illustrates this principle. In the movie George Bailey, George Bailey's Uncle Billy misplaced $5,000. That's a lot of dough, especially then. $5,000 belonged to the building and loan. And the bank examiner was there to check the books, if you remember. In the clip, we're going to show a little clip, because I think this clip just really shows hopeless reality. George Bailey and and Uncle Billy are searching for the money. Watch watch this. Now, look, did you buy anything? Nothing, not even a stick of gum. All right, all right. Now, we'll go over every step you took since you left the house, right? This way. Did you put the envelope in your pocket? Yeah. All right. Maybe, maybe, maybe. 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 I don't want any. Maybe. We've got to find that money. I've no good deal. Uncle Billy, look. Do you realize what's going to happen if we don't find it? Listen to me. Do you have any secret hiding place here in the house? Someplace you would have... Someplace you hide the money. I've come over the whole house, even in rooms that have been locked since I lost a Listen. Listen to me. Think. Think. I can't think anymore, George. I can't think anymore. It hurts. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? You realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. George is in a hopeless situation. The reality of his physical circumstances were that the money was gone. It was nowhere to be found. Uncle Billy had lost it. And George is facing bankruptcy and scandal and prison. And as the movie continues, George continues to live in the hopeless reality of his situation. He decides it'd be better if he was dead. In fact, it would be Better if he had never been born. But George didn't recognize what was going on. He didn't recognize another reality behind the physical reality. What, that throughout the town, people were praying for George. 
He didn't realize that God had heard their prayers. Because as he says, as in all movies, when guys pray, if, if you remember the movie, George says, when he turns to God himself, he says, Father, I'm, I'm not a praying man. All, there, there are no praying men in movies, because that's the line. But anyway, people are praying for him. And God hears their prayers and sends help. Now, the angel that God sends makes it an entertaining movie, but no theological sense. So we're, we're done with George now. That's all we can do with George. The point is that like Sarah and George, we humans are focused on our physical reality, the physical reality of this world. And we forget there's a greater and a higher and a, a realer reality, if I might. We forget the fact that God is not bound by our reality. He created it. And therefore, he controls it. He's above it. He's sovereign over it. He brings a different reality to every situation. A reality that focuses not on what we can see and and touch and hear and even experience, but a reality based on what he has promised, based on who he is. Spiritual reality. And that's the reality that the Lord points Abraham and Sarah and you and I to as, as the passage ends. The Lord reproves Abraham and Sarah. Verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Notice that the Lord speaks to Abraham, not to Sarah. Abraham is responsible for his wife. Abraham is the one that had received the promises. And remember, not too long ago, last chapter, Abraham had laughed at the same promise. So he apparently wasn't doing anything to encourage his wife's faith. I know it's hard, honey, but we have to trust in God. Remember, he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. I know it's been 23 years, but stick in there. Abraham's not doing that. Now notice the Lord's question to Abraham. The Lord, unlike any human being, knows the truth of spiritual reality. He knows it's the real reality. He knows the truth of his power. He knows that he's in control of the situation. So when he says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? It's almost as if the Lord is saying, "Uh, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why would she laugh at that? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't she know who I am? Doesn't she know what I've promised? Doesn't she know that I'm the sovereign, all-powerful, almighty El Shaddai? Doesn't she know I'm the creator of heavens and earth? Doesn't she know that I, in fact, love her and want what's best for her? Doesn't she know that nothing is too hard for me? So the Lord asks a rhetorical question, and then he restates the original promise. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The answer to this rhetorical question, in case you're taking notes, is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Next year, Sarah shall have a son. It's a done deal. It's already happened as far as God is concerned. This is the true reality. This is the reality that Abraham and Sarah should be living in. The reality that even though their physical 
world is saying something totally different, their physical circumstances, they were to trust in the reality that God's power is available to fulfill his promises, no matter what the physical situation is saying. But at this point, Sarah isn't living in this reality. She'd laughed at this reality. The Lord had called her out saying, why did Sarah laugh? Then in verse 15 we read, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and rightly so. She said, no, but you, he said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah denies her laughter, she denies her unbelief, but God doesn't let it go. This is so important, God doesn't let it go. He makes sure she understands, I know you laughed. We're going to go forward, but I, I know what's in your heart. He forces Sarah to confront the reality of her unbelief. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, if you remember, according to the book of Hebrews, this is effective. Sarah received the rebuke and at some point begins to respond in faith. Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. At some point, Sarah begins to get it, to consider him faithful. And when Isaac is born, she gives glory to God Almighty. She received God's reproval and was reassured by his promise. Her faith was restored and she began to live in the reality that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And this is the reality that we need to live in. We need to live in this reality, the real really real reality, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. This is the reality of an all-powerful God. A God who made promises and will fulfill them. A God for whom nothing is too hard. And and that's the final point, the final thing I'd I'd like to look at this morning. This This is our main application for you and I today. I want us to get a get a handle on, on this application. And it's, it's the idea, it's the, it's, the, it's the thing we need to hold on to of living in the reality of God's promises. Living in the reality of God's promises. The Lord had promised Sarah a child. And that is the reality she should have been living in. She should have trusted the Lord despite the, the physical circumstances, despite everything that was going on around her. And that should have affected the way she lived. Instead of living in a hopeless unbelief, she should have been living in joyful expectation. Now we, we all, us, as far as I know, no one here has been promised a child. Raise your, no, don't raise your hand. If you're but we've received many wonderful promises from the Lord. Hundreds of promises from the Lord. And what I want to do now is just take a minute and and look at a few of those promises. These are promises that God has made to those who trust in him. These are promises for us as believers, part of the church, part of the body of Christ. They apply to you if you've given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as I share them, I want you to ask yourself this. Am I trusting this promise in my life? Even if the physical reality is saying something entirely different. Am I living in the reality of the promise of God? Am I allowing that reality to impact the way I live? 
Am I trusting God for whom nothing is too hard? Or am I laughing at him? Am I laughing at him? I'm going to read just ten promises. Just a sampling. These are good promises. I'm 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 not going to comment on the first nine. I'm just going to let those sink into your hearts. I want want you to reflect on them as as I read them. Ask yourself, are you trusting in this in your, in your life? Are you basing your life on this promise or on some other reality that you're experiencing? But then when I, I get to the 10th promise, I'm going to lead us through what it, what it might look like. What it, what it looks like for me personally and what it can look like for you to trust in this promise in your life. To live based on the reality that God, for whom nothing is too hard, has promised this to you. So listen to the first nine promises and just think about them and then we'll look at the tenth more closely. The first one, you are promised salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're promised eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You're promised transformation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God is transforming you. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. You're promised answered prayer. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive If you have faith, you're promised divine guidance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You're promised, and this is an amazing one, you're promised your heart's desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You're promised security in God's love. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let that sink in. You're promised divine strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You're promised that God is working for your good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then finally, you're promised escape from sin. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We could look at any, any one of these promises or any one of the hundreds of other promises in God's word. We could, we could ask and answer the question, what does it look like to live in the reality of this promise? And I would, I would encourage you to do that, maybe on a regular basis. Maybe make this part of your, your quiet time, your time with the Lord, just looking at a few of his promises and asking, am I, am I living based on this or based on something else? In your notes, I've given you the list of these ten, and, and there are books, and, and just do promises of God, search on the internet, and you've got a plethora. But today I want to give one example. 
using this final promise we looked at. What does it mean, what does it look like to live in the reality that God, the God for whom nothing is too hard, has promised his children, his church, that he will provide the way of escape from temptation and sin? This is a huge, this is a life-altering reality if we can live in it. And first, the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize the battle that's going on here. And we need to recognize who has the power in the battle. We need to recognize and trust that God is more powerful than your or my sin nature. That God is more, that the God that can do anything, the almighty God is more powerful than your desire for a certain sin. That he has the ability to provide this escape we need. That this is not too hard for the Lord. Now this promise, if you read it carefully, doesn't say that God will take away temptation. We will always be tempted. Jesus was tempted. But it does mean that the God for whom nothing is too hard will not allow you to be tempted beyond our ability to resist. He will provide the way of escape that we may endure it. This is the reality that we need to live in. This is the truth that we need to trust in. That when we're tempted, God, our friend, is right there by our side, strengthening us and providing a way of escape. And what that means when we're living in that reality is that we turn to him. Is that we turn to God. Because he's really there. The reality is he's there. If we continue to live in the hopeless physical reality of our our circumstances, I always fail. I fail over and over again. Then that's what we will experience. But if we live in the reality that God Almighty is working in and through us to overcome sin then and only then will we experience lasting victory. And I know from personal experience, this is exactly how it works. When I'm tempted, I think when we're all tempted, there comes a moment of decision where the rubber hits the road. The choice is, what reality will I choose to live in? Will I close my spiritual eyes Will I ignore the reality of the all-powerful, almighty God, the God who is my friend, the God who wants what's best for me? Will I ignore the fact that he's right there by my side? Or will I open my eyes and see him? Will I call out to him for help? Will I ask him to provide the way of escape? I can say this. When I keep my eyes closed to that reality, the reality of the all-powerful God, I inevitably fail. I inevitably fall to sin. But I can say this. There has never been a time when I've opened my eyes, when that point of decision has come, I've opened my eyes and I've called out for help that he hasn't been faithful to provide a way of escape. And just so we're clear on this, the way of escape is not some magical mystery thing. It's not some 
coincidence out of the blue. The way of escape isn't some random phone call that diverts my attention before I say those hateful words. It's not a power outage that that causes my computer to crash before I go to that sinful website. It's not a Christian song on the comes on the radio before I flip off that guy. I didn't do I didn't flip anybody. Flip off that guy that cuts me off. That's not the way of escape. The way of escape is God, the all-powerful God Almighty. It's turning to and trusting in the one who has the power to change all things, including your life, your heart. Turning to the one who saved us, who gave us eternal life, who transforms our lives, who's at work for our good, who will always love us, who gives us strength, who answers prayer, who guides us and gives us our heart's desire, because our heart's desire, if we're delighting in the Lord, is always to avoid that sin. It's turning to the one who offers to be our friend. And as we turn to him, he's faithful. He's faithful to provide himself as that way of escape. His presence is better His presence is better and more powerful than any sin that tempts us. And knowing that and experiencing His presence as we turn to Him turns us cold to the sin that's tempting us. Knowing that if we give in to the sin, we lose the presence of God, if only for a time. We need to grab hold. Grab hold of Him. Grab hold of him who says, remember who I am. Remember my power over sin. I'm more powerful than all of your desires. Trust in me. Run into my arms. I'll protect you from the temptation you're facing. Remember, I'm your friend, and I want what's best for you. I can't tell you the countless times that God in his love and mercy has rescued me from my sin nature. He has and will provide the way of escape, and he is the way of escape. And, you know, that's just one example. One, I don't know if it's simple, nothing simple with the Lord. Just one example of how we live differently in the reality of God's promises when we're trusting in his promises. I pray that this week we'll take it on ourselves to, to look at those promises. This is homework, if I can do that. Just take one of those other nine promises. Meditate on it. Think about it. Ask God to help you truly believe and trust his promise. There's another promise that I, I almost, I go, this, I don't know, I should do this promise as the example because it's another mind-blowing thing that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Think about living in the reality of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That's not in your notes. That his power is made perfect in your weakness. You know what that does? It takes away every excuse you've ever had to do anything that God calls you to do. Because he recognizes the reality of your weakness and he says, I'll perfect you in that. My power will be perfected in your weakness. Just one other quick example. I mean, that's the one. I'm not giving another one. God desires those that are his friends to live not to live hopeless lives based on their physical circumstances, but to live joyful, expectant lives based on the reality of his promises. I was in a dark tunnel 
It stretched for miles before me. I I managed to strike a, a match that provided a small flicker of light. And on the walls of the tunnel I read, I began to believe nothing will separate you from the love of God. And I began to see a a light up ahead. I, I could see the walls of the tunnel more clearly now. And I read and believed, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. On the walls of the tunnel were written the promises of God. And as I read them, I believed them. And I was no longer in a, a tunnel. It had become an open field, ripe for harvest. And the sun was shining on my face And in the light, I felt the presence of my friend Jesus. He was pushing me forward, and he was holding my hand, and he was saying, live in the reality of the promises I've given you. And you will find that nothing, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for for your promises. Lord, thank you that you are our friend and and you desire us to know and understand, and, and more than that, to live in the reality of the promises you've given us. Lord, I pray for myself, and I pray for each person here, that we would be, be willing to do the work, be willing to seek out your word and your promises, to meditate on, to memorize them, to place them in our hearts, that we might trust in them, trust in the promises, not because they're words on a page, but because they come from the mouth of God. And Lord, that would transform our lives. That we would know that you're at work in us. And that nothing is too hard for you. In Christ's name, amen. Jim, can you come lead us in communion?